understand the link between LGBT rights, marriage equality, Black mm -hmm. rights, mm -hmm. Black Lives Matter, I understand that the oppression mm -hmm. around the other shows up in all of these stories. Right. You're listening to She's Got Drive podcast, the podcast that inspires women to be the driver in their own lives through the life and stories of Black women with drive. And I'm your host, Shirley McAlpine. I'm a business consultant and executive coach and a leadership facilitator working with people and organizations to live their lives by design and not default. Welcome back to another episode of She's Got Drive. Welcome back. And we are in the middle of August now and I have a great show for you. I did this interview a few weeks ago and I had the pleasure and the privilege of sitting down with Jody Patterson who's a mother, who's an activist, an author. And it really was a privilege. It was such a beautiful conversation that we had. When you look up Jodi and when you go on anything where she is, like Instagram, if you look at her sites, if you look at where she speaks, really get the experience of her being like a warrior mum. And you know that part of you as a mother, that part of your identity that really gives you who you are and drives you to be bigger than you might know yourself to be, invites you to see yourself bigger than you perhaps even thought you could be when you started your journey as a mother and just really allows you to step up and step forward. That's what I mean by warrior mom. What a lot of what we speak about is her journey as a mother and her and, and her growth and more specifically her growth through her child Penelope who really has been a teacher for Jodie you know how the out of the mouth of babes you know the wisdom that can come out of our children and what the amazing sense of self and leadership that Penelope has demonstrated in it's such a short life really you know but you'll hear you'll hear the wisdom of Penelope in uh, as Jodie shares shares her story with us and and what it has given her and what their life and and then the life as an activist and what it's given her there so she's also so it's a really beautiful beautiful conversation that we have and we also talk about race and how we're sharing and um race and racism with our children and how we're supporting them in that journey too I'm always mindful that when we start our journey as mothers we don't know where it will take us and we still don't know we're always on this on this long journey so even if you are not a mother there is a lot in here for you for you to hear but I loved and appreciate my time with Jodie so much and I'm sure that you will too so before we dive into that the interview and the conversation that I had with with Jodie one of the things that I want to remind you about is uh, there's two things really. One is, you know that I've I've developed these. She's got drive journals. You can get them through my site if you go to shellymacapon.com onto the shop on on there, or if you go to Amazon, it'll take you to the Amazon page because you buy them on Amazon. And there's one that's really I'm really proud of is the gratitude journal. There's a lot of people buying it and getting a lot from doing it. It's 30 days of gratitude, making every day count. And it's really designed so that we can get into a practice of gratitude each day for 30 days and to allow ourselves to be present to the things that are working, the things, the gifts that we have, the things that bring us joy, the things that we really can appreciate because 
in this time that's so challenging and with the kind of things that come at us, it's sometimes hard to see all the beautiful things that we have. So we can identify three things that we are grateful for each day. It's also in the gratitude journal or hidden in there is the hidden gem as well is the in setting our intentions each day as well and what who we want to be and what we want to accomplish. So that's the 30 days of gratitude. The link will be in the bio, but you could go to and um, you can find it on the She's Got Drive journals page on amazon.com and .co.uk and any other Amazons actually it's, it's available worldwide and also you can get it find the link from my website to shirleymacalpine.com forward slash I think it's called journals and you can get to um that you can get to buy that lots of people are getting them for gifts for people as well so I encourage you to do that too the other thing is if if you're loving the show please remember to rate and review the show and let me know what you're getting from listening to all these amazing women that I have the privilege to speak to and I just I always get moved by how generous they are with being a yes and being willing to sit down with me and have a chat with me even though I don't know them and we have such a lovely connection so let me tell you more let me and with that let's talk about Jodie and, and let me tell you a bit more about Jodie so Jodie is a mother an activist and author she's the mother of five children she is an advocate for LGBTQAI um, community who and has been recognized for her activism by Hillary Clinton by the Family Circle magazine by Cosmopolitan magazine by Refinery29 and numerous other people she's a regular speaker and both nationally and internationally on a variety of topics including identity and business parenting and gender and in 2017 she gave a TEDx talk in Germany entitled gender is obsolete she holds a position of board of board director with human rights campaign and um and works closely with hrc's parents for transgender equality council she also sits on the advisory board of the ackerman institute's gender and family project where she advises um on strategic partnerships and overall goals for the organization her books are the bold world which is a memoir on family and transformation and her recent book is born ready the true story of a boy named penelope i give you jamie and her most recent book is Born Ready, A True Story of a Boy Named Penelope. I give you Jodie Patterson. Jodie, thank you so much for being willing to be a guest on She's Got Drive. Oh, my pleasure. I love speaking about stuff with women. <laughs> Any stuff. I came across you and I think I came across you through, originally through Instagram in truth you know I came across your page and through the people that I connected to as it works right I hesitated to reach out to you just because what I do is I I always think is she gonna say yes you know so and then when you said yes I'm like she, she said yes I was so always excited about that so thank you I'm just so so happy to be spending this time with you why don't we start with you sharing the She's Got Drive audience, like about you and what you do. Um, I have five children, ages 10, 12, 14, 20, and 28. There are three fathers to my five children. So mm -hmm. one, my daughter is from my first marriage, mm -hmm. and my three boys are from my second marriage. Mm -hmm. And my last son, who's my oldest, actually is adopted. 
and he has a biological mom, of course, and mm-hmm. a biological father. We are very mm-hmm. much in a blended family. Yeah. And so my mothering, yeah, my mothering uh, for me is like building. And I usually put that first in my priorities. Mm-hmm. How do I build this team up? How do I grow this team right. or this structure right, of, of people? And when I say that we are blended and I'm dealing with, I'm, I'm leading a blended team. My children are Swiss, German, Vietnamese, African from Ghana, and Black American right. um, from my end. So there's a lot of a lot of there's languages lot. Yeah, and cultures right. that I'm taking into consideration as the mama of this um, team. Another portion of me is writer. Mm-hmm. I write um, books. I've written a book called The Bold World, which is um, the telling of my story, a woman who was forced to and then enjoyed <laughs> the process of shifting for her children. And it explores gender and race and identity. Mm-hmm. And then I've also written a children's book recently that will come out at the end of the year called Born Ready, the true story of a boy named Penelope. Mm-hmm. And I'm working on a third book, which explores radical parenting. <laughs> which I think, you know, if we could all just be more like many of the mothers that I know, we would as a world be much better off. So it's like right. it takes mothering, the concept of, and the power structure of mothering. Mm-hmm. It bases it in the home, but it, it, it takes it beyond the home as well. And I'm an, also an activist. A lot of my um, time and energy and thought process and even temperament in some ways is based in activism. And I got there because my family is full of activists and change makers. I was raised by activists. My uncle is Gil Scott Heron, who wow. wrote, the yeah. musician who wrote The Revolution Will Not Be Televised, yeah. among many yeah. other songs. Yeah. My grandmother was a civil rights activist in the South, changed many laws and uh, shifted America to be better. Mm-hmm. My father was a revolutionary on Wall Street, at the first black brokerage firm. My mother did her activism in education. She opened up a school in Harlem called the Patterson School. Just really have been, you know, raised to be an activist before all else. And although I put it third on the list, it really has just seeped into everything from mm-hmm. mothering to writing mm-hmm. to my um, day-to-day work. You know, as you said, the activism is like in your mothering. What you said about radical parenting, yep. the stand that you are. I think when I when I read about you, it's so interesting because I put and I put mother first. That's what I put because that's what you did. Is, yeah, that because that's what comes out when I tr- kind of track your movements and what you speak about, what you stand, and how you speak about the lens in which you see the world as well, and what you sh- can share from even when you're making a when you're taking a stance on something, some other looks like a broader issue. The lens of motherhood is very much there. I'm glad you noticed that, yeah. and I think it's like we have to work with where we are, right. like work with what you got, figure out where you stand Mm -hmm. in this moment Mm -hmm. and see if there's room to be better in that place where you stand. It might take you all over the world. Like I looked at myself and I said, I'm a mother. Well, how can I do that better? And that actually took me to some of the organizations that I work with. I'm the chair of the board human rights campaign foundation. And that was through mothering, (laughs) not because I'd raised millions of dollars for organizations in the past, but because of my mothering and, and putting sort of front loading my mothering Mm -hmm. that took me all over the world. And so I'm glad you see that first. Yeah, it's, it's really, really apparent. It's really apparent. <laughs> you know, when I think about people who are mothering and are activists or and working and traveling, because I know that you travel, because then that oftentimes can sometimes feel like it's getting in the way of, of our mothering. How do you reconcile that? And, and maybe it's just the notion of what mothering looks like, or maybe it's just... Exactly, yeah. How we make sense of I... our mothering as we, as we take on a number of other things that make us who we are and the things that we care about. When I speak of mothering, Mm. 
I'm actually not speaking of the hugs and the kisses and the affirmations. Mm-hmm. That That is something very important, right. but I'm not, the mothering I'm talking about is more architectural building. So I'm looking at mothering. And I, when I say mothering, I don't even mean biological right. Right. Um, parents. Right. And I don't mean cisgender women. Right. No, I mean, exactly. it's mm-hmm. a, it's a, it's a power, it's a power structure. It's a, it's a uh, thought process, right. Mm-hmm. Of raising and building a child, a person mm-hmm. or communities of people. Mm-hmm. And I see, and I'm, so I'm calling that mothering and putting a word to that, that process of building up people and communities. I'm calling it mothering, but it is for me something that we can do even when we are not in the house. And I okay. just realized that when I was in the hospital with COVID, Literally yeah. in the hospital. Yeah, for let's two weeks tell me about that because I I was in um, this experience with COVID. I, I hope has made me a better mother um, and a better leader of my family. I was in Las Vegas traveling for work, and I had been traveling nonstop. It was Black History Month and mm-hmm. going into Women's History Month, and so I was on a plane and a bus and a train. I landed in Vegas, and a few days later, basically crawled myself to the hospital and was in the ER room, and then I was isolated, and I never left the hospital. I was COVID positive and I was the third patient in the state of Nevada. So it was really early on. As we know, I had to be isolated and I was in the hospital room with just a little bit of contact to a nurse and to a doctor. And I saw my children only on Skype and they couldn't come to see me in Vegas. And I couldn't, you know, no one could get to me. And it was strange for me because I like to parent and I like to be up close. I'm a hands-on type, hands all over type person. (laughs) But of course, this moment, just forced me to detach and untether, right? I I talk a lot about untethering in my new book. We have to kind of cut the strings or sometimes we're forced to Mm -hmm. cut the strings to the very things that we love. Being in the hospital is like a break in everything you know. Um, When that happened, I had to reassess what I could do for my kids. And I, I found just a couple of things, just one thing with each child once a day. And it was really just instead of managing, I was going to engage in joy. Mm. joyful things so one kid and it sounds really like almost like you know I'm pretty straightforward and it sounds very loosey-goosey but it worked really well Mm -hmm. and I found that these little one moment touches that I was able to do with my kids or around engaging in joy really worked I I did an hour with riddles an hour of riddles with Mm -hmm. one son Mm -hmm. usually he annoys the mess out of me with his riddles (laughs) mom would you rather jump off a plane with no parachute or stick your head in the ocean for an hour? You know, <laughs> I don't have time for that. But we, we, <laughs> we did an hour of riddles. And um, the other son, I watched him show me all the latest dances. You know, I watched him dance for an hour, half an hour. And then my 14-year-old, he's a real science math geek. And so we just went through some of the articles on COVID and the medical um, discoveries mm-hmm. and the density of saliva (laughs) (laughs) but you know I tell you it was like felt good I mean you know FaceTiming with your kid feels sort of like a defeat Mm -hmm. (laughs) in a sense it doesn't feel like the the best thing Mm -hmm. possible but what came out of it something really unexpected we just went into COVID and we've had a better relationship over these last three months once since I've been home I mean some of that was just from the break in our routine, we had yeah. to change our patterns. So yes, yeah, it's, it's a little bit undefined. This idea of mothering does not have to always happen up close and personal right. or up, up close. Yeah. <laughs> There's a personal element to it, but you can find that. 
And then you have to read, and I can see that you had to like redef redefine it in the moment. What's needed for where for the circumstances. So and also what you can do. What you can do, right? Mm -hmm. Yeah, and then you have to call on. You know, the a good thing about parenting or this parenting that I'm talking about is developing your tribe along with you. I call them a tribe of aunties. Mm -hmm. I mean, I, I have some great men in my life, but I'm focusing on the aunties right now. Right. I have probably maybe 10 solid aunties that my children call auntie. <laughs> there is no blood relationship, yes. but we know them as aunties. Right. They're my sister friends and, we, and, and they have some ownership in our lives some yeah. bit of ownership so that my children understand that they're vital. They know to call them if anything goes wrong or mm -hmm. if something goes wrong, mm -hmm. they're identifiable and they show up. So they helped and they are helping and we help each other during right. COVID and right. any crisis really. And that like that ability to, um, to know who your tribe is. I love that you bring that up because it takes us back to a way of living that was when we lived closer to our families and then we lived closer to in, in closer communities. I mean, I feel it right now because I left my I left London seven years ago and and I I want to say I've been kind of bereft in a way since you know the because to rebuild that foundation of your tribe mm -hmm. takes mm -hmm. time, but the when you have it. It is an amazing contribution mm -hmm. to your to you and your family, and it's having me think about how that wine. When you say ten, I was like, "Wow, ten! Is that what <laughs> well, I used to I'm thinking of like ten. Wow, that'd be amazing. Really, <laughs> it does sound really big, but I tell you, the blessing I have had in my life is that I've been in these communities, and my family, my parents insisted on me being in these communities that have understood the auntie system. Mm -hmm. So I went mm -hmm. to Spelman College. Right. in Atlanta, which is an all-women's historically right. black college. And I have, honestly, probably five of the 10 from Spelman College. Okay. And then because I was just raised that way, wherever I go, like the same way people, when you move into a new neighborhood, you look for like the coffee shop and the wine mm -hmm. shop and like mm -hmm. your essentials. When I move or when I move through life, I, prior to getting good coffee and good wine, mm -hmm. I, I look for the aunties. Right, right. So it's just, you know, I, it's like almost like a training, but I'm starting to really push for my friends who didn't have that background to get on the program. Mm -hmm. Because in the middle of the crisis, it's so hard to identify who can yeah. help you. Yeah. So it's like, and, and the COVID moment seems so intense right now, but I guarantee you it's not the last crisis that we'll face in our lifetime. Right. It's just not, you know, right. so we have to use this as a time to, take a moment, you know, make a list of your friends mm -hmm. and see if there are any aunties on that list. And if you don't, then start to widen your friend group and be you know, intentional and conscious about creating, we use the word community and chosen family, but it's really just a person who you can call on Right. That has your back and speaks your language. Yes, you're right. I'm going to be on a mission to get to the same. <laughs> making that list. The aunties were so that scale was present for me in London at that scale. I think that when I came <laughs> here, I kind of um, at some point gave up on having that here. You know, I have loads of a large network of friends and, and longtime friends in New York. I don't live in New York. You know mm -hmm. what I mean? And so the, yeah. the, one of the things about the aunties is proximity matters too. For sure. You know, yeah. so whilst yeah. they were like, I've got some peeps in New York is like not when it comes to the kids and, and what, what our daily mm -hmm. needs and support, it doesn't, and supporting each other. So I do have some, but I'm like, how do I get to, oh, 
you, you talked about the range into it as a def, defining the blended family, the range of different kind mm-hmm. of race ethnicities that sit in your family too. In this moment mm-hmm. where the, the movement around anti-racism is taking a turn and we don't know where, how big the turn will be and we don't know where the turn will end up, but it certainly is we're in this, we're, in a, we're creating momentum around this conversation in a way that we haven't for a very, very long time. And so whilst it, there's so much pain, there's also some hope in there. I'm curious about how you're making sense of it for yourself as far mm-hmm. as you can and then how you're making sense of it in terms of your family. I mean, the thing I keep going back to is that this is a collision. What we're, what we're witnessing is a collision. The most obvious collision right now is you know, a pandemic hit, COVID hit, mm-hmm. COVID, COVID uh, emerged, mm-hmm. and then a black man was murdered. Mm-hmm. So we've got the collision of COVID and Black Lives Matter at the very same mm-hmm. moment. And that collision has just held hostage the attention of the world. Mm-hmm. And I think it had to, it had to happen. It, I know it had to happen. We all can see that mm-hmm. it is those individual moments did not do, <laughs> did not change folks. Right. Racism has been happening century after century. Mm-hmm. They say that folks know COVID was on its way. They say it was here before we even knew as the general population. But when the two collided, there was nothing else to do but pay attention. Right. It stole our attention. So I understand and recognize the magnitude of death and loss. And I understand the heaviness that it weighs on families. And I respect that. There's no other place we can be but right here. Mm-hmm. So when I talk to my family, I try to um, approach it not like I wish it weren't, but this is where we are mm-hmm. and how are we going to be flexible in this moment because I don't want us to break, right? We need right. to be have a flexible approach to how we shift our lives. And then I think about also I put my, my lens of activism on what do we need to be doing and speaking and saying and mm-hmm. um, donating our energy and our money and our time in this moment? And so I've sat with my kids at the dinner table and we've talked about it. We've seen, the, we've watched the videos and then we talk about it. And that's the hard part, right? I, I want to back, back up a little bit. I just mm-hmm. kind of said, we talk about it at the dinner table, but the way I've approached this is dose and environment. So right. it's when you're talking about, when you're dealing with children and this virus of racism, we have to think about it scientifically. Give them a dose of it. Mm-hmm. Don't filter it. Mm-hmm. Don't lie about it, but give a small dose. Right. And when you give that dose, set the right environment so that they can ingest it and listen and right. take it in without it really taking over them. Right. So we do it at the dinner table. <laughs> we talk about racism. We talk about the murder of George Floyd and Breonna Taylor. We talk about the many deaths and the many um, mistakes that white America has made and the many sacrifices that um and, 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 the, and endless patience that black communities have had and communities of color and trans communities and queer mm-hmm. communities have had for the bias. And so we talk about it at the dinner table where there's some family comfort. Mm. So I say, how do I address this? I say, tell your children, talk to, talk to your family without lying, but think about it in terms of dose and environment. Mm. It's really good because I, I, it makes me think about, because in our family we're doing it around mo- using movies and programming and programs that are on and mm-hmm. then talking. But, I, you know, because we 
for example, the other night was 40, number 42 and, and, mm -hmm. and seeing how, how systemic racism is very much and how it manifests each day. And then what does an ally, a white ally look like? And, mm -hmm. and what is, what was he doing to ensure that Jackie Robinson was able to fulfill his potential was able to what was what are those actions as well as what was the experiences and what so we're using that and i'm and i and i love the kind of creating a, a con, the container for the conversation mm -hmm. and the dinner mm -hmm. over dinner being i guess you said a place of comfort a place of safety yeah you know yeah for those conversations and i acknowledge because that that's not always the case in everyone's household but like mm, where that is mm -hmm. your household like where can you create safe safe containers of in terms of having those conversations and then limiting doing it in a in a way that builds that doesn't overwhelm mm -hmm. children you're right not every family has the the dinner table period mm -hmm. or a safe dinner table mm -hmm. and so you know this is when we talk about systemic and we talk about residual effects, it's like the, the structure, the family structure has been so broken through racism mm -hmm. and bias mm -hmm. and prejudice that in the center of a crisis, it is so hard for some families to survive it and come out of it. It's partially economic, but a lot of it is just structural. Where's the family structure? Mm -hmm. And so we have to really think about that, you know, the privilege of communicating with your family and looking at racism from a safe space is, is such a privilege. And I know that there's no simple answer to that. Mm -mm. No, there isn't. Mm -mm. For those that can, mm -hmm. let's do that. And for those that, that where it's not, it's like, I always say, let's, where can you find your corner? Mm -hmm. You know, there are these outreach groups that are understanding that some homes are not friendly to LGBT kids mm -hmm. and they are now trapped in those unfriendly homes and right. violent homes. Right. Um, and, and not only to LGBT kids, but to, you know, women and to mm -hmm. young people and to all, you know, we, we are now in homes that are sometimes not safe. Mm -hmm. um, and we can find online um, organizations that help support us um, virtually Um and this is, I know, I think your audience is all over the country, right? Mm -hmm. Yeah. But in New York, there's an organization called the Gender and Family Project at the Ackerman Institute. And we do peer groups, peer-to-peer -peer groups mm -hmm. that support kids and teens. And we've been doing a lot of work that that is really now supporting us virtually. The beauty of online communities, like we, we have... So many people have been able to lean into it and we know that some people don't always get access to online. The inequalities and the inequities get in the way sometimes of support. But how do we find mm -hmm. our way through is um, this so whole, much. The whole system is, is broken. It down. is. There's so thing. much work. You know, when you start to get into it, I mean, I, it's there's just so much work. And then I feel the importance of us do do what you can do something, do what you can. Mm -hmm. And, and I really feel like on some level, there's nothing that's too small. A lot of what I do is looks big on, on paper, chair of the board of a national organization. But mm -hmm. a lot of the work I do is small. I have a friend, Kamika Shelby, who's a mother, her son, Nigel Shelby died because of LGBT bullying. Mm -hmm. And Kamika and I become friends. And so we 
work together to make sure that she stays here alive and, and, and healthy. And so that's like, a, those are check-ins. Those are uh, text and phone calls. Mm-hmm. And those are, okay, what are the obstacles? What are the bills you have? Mm-hmm. Who are the, you know, w- w- do you have a support system? Oh, you are looking for, you know, X, Y, and Z, let right. me help you. Right. It's just tackle, tackling tasks with my friend. Right. Right. Um, and I have friends who help my aunties help me tackle tasks. Right. So that that's a small thing that makes um that changes the trajectory of an entire family. So when you say small things, given mm-hmm. her experience, I know that it's not small. Mm-hmm. I know the reach isn't small, the text isn't small, the let me help you figure out something that feels like where someone else is like, oh, they could figure out going to pay that bill. But mm-hmm. in those to have experienced that, to be uh, grieving in that way, is huge. It's a huge contribution. The humanity will stay, will get us out of this mm-hmm. more so than efficiency, more so than mm-hmm. um, the economics, but humanity. And so I had to remember what I what it was like in the hospital for me. I just needed someone on some days to order a meal for me, right, and have it sent to the hospital. Seems pretty simple, but I just couldn't do it. Right. Another time, it was someone to speak to the doctor and advocate on my behalf because right. there's like a hospital language that I just couldn't muster up when I was right. sick. Um, and so I had to remember how I was. Kamika Shelby and I are two different women. And I could say there are many things that make us different. Mm-hmm. But if I remember how I was in a moment, just as a human, and I, then I can assume that she, as a right. human, would also benefit from the things that I needed. Right. And so like that's where I think we could be right now as people take the 10 things that were the hardest for you today and then assume that this person over there who looks quite different from you needs those same 10 things how can you help them with those 10 things yeah that's so practical and and Mm -hmm. doable as well Mm -hmm. and we we all have someone over there that we have looked at that other person over there there's always someone over there and it, it in it and to get to that person we don't need an organization Mm-hmm. Um, or a rally, <laughs> right? We can right. just, we can get there on it. Right. And you're right. We see it and that we pause for a second. And then mm-hmm. sometimes we keep, we don't pause long enough to, to, to galvanize ourselves into action and to do something. Can we look at your work around LGBTQ mm-hmm. communities that's, and tell us where it started and how long you've been an activist and did it start with Penelope or did it start before that? I would say that I, was a con- I became a conscious activist through my child and through my children. But again, you know, I was raised by activists. So in a sense, it is more, it was philosophical and it was in my blood. Mm-hmm. Um, but half the stuff we do when we're young is you know, we're responding to something that's just right in front of our face (laughs) and it feels good or it's fun. But as we get older and the stakes are higher and we have people that we are supporting and nurturing Mm -hmm. and growing and businesses Mm -hmm. that we are supporting and nurturing and growing, we start to really pay attention in a different way. My third child was born 12 years ago and I assumed a girl because of the anatomy. The baby came out, the doctor said, you have a girl, but we looked at the child and looked like a girl. So we named that child Penelope, Ajua Gloria, Mm -hmm. after strong women in our family. Mm -hmm. 
Penelope was born 100% healthy. Within the first year, Penelope started becoming um, agitated. There were screaming and night reoccurring nightmares. And um, by the second year, bedwetting and nail biting until bloody. And almost into the third year, Penelope had become a bully, pushing um, siblings, but also pushing just other kids around at the park. Dad and I couldn't figure out what was wrong. We tried everything. We didn't assume anything. We thought, well, maybe it's Let's look at the dairy. Maybe it's a right. dairy allergy. Right. <laughs> we, pulled, we, we thought maybe clean food would, would fix the situation. And we thought maybe more love and more naps. Mm-hmm. So we started hugging more and reading stories more. But Penelope became angrier and angrier. By three, I sat Penelope down. I said, baby, what is wrong? Why are you so angry? Right. And Penelope finally had a moment to speak because I had never asked before. And Penelope said, well, mama, because everyone thinks I'm a girl and I'm not. I am a boy. I said, well, I thought maybe Penelope was talking about being um, a tomboy or a feminist, right? Maybe Penelope was noticing that men have the upper hand in this society. Penelope wanted in on the power, right? right? Um, So I said, look, however you feel is fine. Don't worry. I love you. And if you feel like acting like a boy, go ahead and act like a boy. Penelope quickly corrected me and said, no, mama, I don't feel like a boy. I am a boy. In that moment, I realized I did not know enough about my own kid. Mm -hmm. I spent some time researching. I spent some time listening to Penelope. I did 10,000 hours, like Malcolm Gladwell says. And from that time, months and months and months, the only thing that made sense is what Penelope was saying. I am a boy. And I just took it for that. And that became the the impetus. That conversation with my son was the impetus to my my work in the LGBT community and seeing myself as part of that community, seeing my family as part of that community and working because I understand the link between trans rights, LGBT rights, marriage equality, black rights, Mm -hmm. black lives matter. I understand that the oppression Mm -hmm. around the other shows up in all of these stories. Right. Um, and so I've just, I just, I, I would, would have never thought that I wasn't for the LGBT community, but when my son told me I am a boy, I realized I knew I really wasn't standing side by side with that right. community. Right. And now that community is my community. Yeah. What have you learned on that journey about yourself? In the beginning of this process, I thought I was saving my son. I really did. I thought, shit, the whole world tells me that trans folks are murdered, mm-hmm. trans folks are mm-hmm. dangerous, trans folks are right. scary and different. And so I was really trying to save, just as a gut response, save my son mm-hmm. from what I thought was coming. And what I've learned is that Penelope, my son, who chose, chooses to keep his name Penelope, mm-hmm. is healthy, happy, and natural and normal, yeah. a part of the human <laughs> experience. Um, so I really had to then look at myself, what made me not understand him. What was my blind spot? Right. Why did I not know who he was? Why did I not see? So this became a transformation of myself. I've learned that we are flexible. Our minds are flexible. Our minds are malleable. Mm -hmm. A lot of this is language. Mm -hmm. Um, Penelope is the same child I birthed. I just now use a different language. I say he instead of she. No big deal. I've learned that at 50, I can change. I can shift. I can I've learned that um, bias is in all of us. As a black woman, Mm -hmm. I didn't feel I held much bias or power over others. Mm -hmm. But I, as a cisgender woman, 
had a blind spot for my own son who's trans. Right. So I, we all hold bias, I learned. Tactics that I learned, get back up, right? The only difference between the winner and the loser is we get back up. Mm-hmm. We, we've hit so many blows in our family, gender blows and um, transphobia blows and black hatred blows, and we just get up. We literally just get up, and that's the that is something I've learned over and over again. Um, I've also learned strategy matters. You, you know, we I've heard a lot this term black girl magic and black excellence, and I know what they're talking about, but it's not magic. So when right. you see these phenomenal black yeah. women, it is not magic. That that is strategy right. that the mother, the grandmother, the great grandmother right. worked on. And so we don't want to diminish it as magic. We want to understand it and cap and 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 then do it, mm-hmm. right? So I've started to look at how are these mother, how have these mothers raised families against the odds, and some of and some of us have outperformed our counterparts just on on strategy, on determination, on skill, right. on vision. And so I've started to really think about the strategy of mothering. It's one thing I've learned from this. There's a strategy around mm-hmm. it. Because my kids, although in this world we don't value black lives and we don't value trans lives, we don't value women. In my house, we have learned to fortify ourselves and we, we see ourselves as the prototype. So Penelope, who's trans, really sees himself as the prototype. <laughs> and my daughter, who's uh, 20 years old, she sees herself as the prototype. Right. And to really, you know, for black children and trans children, to see themselves as central and the prototype is revolutionary. That's a, of course, it's a different story for, for white white families. Mm-hmm. It's important for them to decentralize right. themselves. Right. But, uh, yeah, yeah against, learned... against the background of society and everything that it says you are, if you're black and, or if you're trans or black, mm-hmm. black and trans is another, like what society says who you are. The fact that your son is really uh, you know knows who he is from a very early age and says a lot also about who you are as a mother who he is today i mean is is he started from his sense of self was so incredible and mm-hmm. then this the environment that you provide and the mothering and the parenting and the, the the family unit has been also essential in allowing him to be who he is and so I think, you know, when you say where the prototype is like, yeah, mm-hmm. <laughs> yeah, it is. It's like how to respond in a way that empowers versus diminishes in a way that sees, in a way that cares. Because we know that people have had very different responses from their family. That's not that. Mm-hmm. And it is, mm-hmm. it is, it destroys them, you know? And there are these places where, you know, I think it's um, important to show ex- how, like an example of how we can centralize our children. Mm-hmm. Um, if we are brown and black and LGBT, if we've been, you know, sort of marginalized by society. So it, we can centralize our children through stories, story mm-hmm. time. So, and that, you know, that just takes creativity and imagination. So my mom, when she'd put us to sleep at night, she would tell us all the classic stories like Rapunzel and Cinderella. Rapunzel and my stories in my house had cornrows. You know, right. all of the lead characters had either afros or braids, right. um, brown skin and um, lips like mine. 
And my mom would describe them to us and we would say, wait, Rapunzel has cornrows on? And she would say, of, of course she does. How do you think her hair was so long? She would let down her cornrows. So we, you know, this was about uh, placing us in every story. Mm-hmm. And we appreciated that as young people. And then when I became older, wherever our parents, our parents insisted that we go into all types of neighborhoods. So we lived on the Upper West Side of Manhattan, which at the time was all white, mm-hmm. um, predominantly white. Mm-hmm. In our my building, we were the only black folks in our building. So we grew up in a predominantly white neighborhood. Every weekend, we would go uptown to Harlem to play tennis, not at a shishi tennis court, mm-hmm. but at the public tennis courts right. right near the projects. And then I went to high school on the Upper East Side in a very wealthy white neighborhood. And so my dad would insist that we experience all types of folks, rich and poor from all different backgrounds racially. And he insisted that when we walked into space that we would own the joint. We act, he would say, walk in like you own the joint. Mm -hmm. And that was about um, feeling confident and practicing confidence in all environments, right? And then as I got older, I went to Spelman College, which is a great place for young black women to feel at the center of the center of the Mm -hmm. center. And not everyone has, you know, these are not options for everyone. And they're not even maybe interesting to everyone, but find places, find communities and, and, and experience, you know, experience things in different, in, in those communities. Mm-hmm. I think it's, um, we can, we can read about it. We can teach about it. We can speak about it. We can talk about it. And we have to experience it, um, stepping into, um, these communities that, that, um, support us. When you talk about the, the conference, I mean, this and the Spelman experience mm-hmm. and how, how being in that environment for four years, how has that, how did that shape you to, the, to who you are today? Spelman was actually not, not even my choice. <laughs> my dad, uh, he brilliantly said, baby girl, you can go any to any school you want. It is your choice. The world is yours. However, I'm only paying for a black college. <laughs> and that was just like... Yeah, you know, that, that was that. And so right. I ended up at Spelman. Right. Um, but it was really the, the smartest move for my fa- my parents to make. It shaped me. I learned about, um, I got a top-notch education. And I also understood radicalism, feminism, activism, mm-hmm. community, sisterhood. Um, and I never, ever once during my time at those four years of college, which was so formidable, I never once questioned who I was. There was nothing that got in the way of me learning. Right. You know, my race didn't get in the way. My gender didn't get in the way. Nothing. So that was just a smart move. Jeanetta Cole was our president at the time. Mm-hmm. She then later on went on to run the Smithsonian African American Museum. Mm-hmm. Um, she's a phenomenal woman historian. It is the breeding ground for thought and creativity, right? And so when we, you know, when you ask, how does it shape me? It is the mo. I mean, it is the moment. I always I go back to Spelman and what I learned there all the time when I'm trying to imagine what post COVID, what post George Floyd's murder will look like. Because we have to start creating and imagining something we've never seen before. Mm-hmm. We don't want a better version of yesterday because yesterday no. was crappy. Right. But so like Spelman College allowed me to put my creativity to work in my intellectual development. Mm-hmm. Sometimes we just don't have any room for creativity. Our brains are so inundated with stuff. But that time at Spelman, because it took racism off the table and it took genderism off the table, it allowed the creativity side, the creative side of me to come out. 
Yeah, so if you're no longer dealing with that in the day-to-day, -day, the space, and in community, and that, yeah, seeing yourself around, reflected as well everywhere, it must be phenomenal, really phenomenal. It is, and you know, a lot of times we look at people who've been in isolation, and when they come out, they come out with um, another skill, another skill mm -hmm. set, whether it's drawing or writing mm -hmm. or right. being become, they become philosophers. And although Spellman is not exactly isolation, it is a world that insulates you mm -hmm. and gives you space from other things, right? right? And so what I noticed is I came out of Spellman during that time, I, I was isolated in a sense in, or insulated. Mm -hmm. <laughs> and when I came out, I had so much more uh, vision. So I try to use that now, like the time that we have, sometimes we're forced to isolate, like I was mm -hmm. in the hospital again. Right. Just came out better. It came out better. We can use meditation. It's almost like meditation. Right. <laughs> Tuning out some of the noise and centralizing um, your thought. Mm -hmm. I'd like to, um, one of the things that we, I explore around um, in She's Got Drive is the notion of success. Black women are succeeding, and what? How does? How do you define success? Because it, 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 people define it in very different ways. So when you, when yeah. I say success to you, how do you define success? And then would you say that you have achieved the success that you, you want in your own life? Oh gosh, I don't even know anymore about individual success. Mm -hmm. Honestly, I just what difference does it make to me? This is a question I ask myself. What difference mm -hmm. does it make if I have become the chair of the board of a national organization if we don't have the freedom to walk outside mm -hmm. safely mm -hmm. or an education educational system that is informative, mm -hmm. not indoctrinating, right? right, but educating? And so I don't know. I don't want to really look at individual success mm -hmm. right now. I think that um is a secondary conversation i think the primary conversation is how does what does success mean for this country mm -hmm. what does success mean for the world and i would say freedom to move around safely mm -hmm. for all folks particularly marginalized folks mm -hmm. full employment right so we can support our families housing decent housing every single person not no caveat around that right factual education <laughs> I mean, every single one of us can look at our education and see how flawed it was. Right. I went to one of the top high schools in New York City, and they skipped over the entire chapter of Black history. Just never talked about it. Um, so factual education, the police system has to change. Demilitarize. Like, why do they have tanks? Why do they have mm -hmm. all of these super guns and super tanks and i don't even know the names but well, why like demilitarizing the police if we did that that would be success right and all of the other things we could then start to to focus on and you know by the way these are just the basic principles that many of our revolutionaries have talked about i mean the black panthers talked about some of these about these very things that i just listed um they sounded so radical to many people and in reality these are things that moms across the world would agree with me on yeah feel like I've experienced success on a personal career level. I'm oh, sorry, on a, on a career level, but mm -hmm. I don't even know what that holds right now. Because my kids can't, they, they, every day they ask me, can I go to the corner store? Can I go get some chips, mom? Can I go to the store? Can I bike ride? And I have to say no. <laughs> so my title of success 
really is has is has nothing has nothing to do with this with, what what this life really right. demands of us right now. Right, we're a long way off from that collective success that you describe. We really, really are. One of the questions that I always ask, and you you might have shared something that points to this, but I always ask, what has been the most one of the most courageous moments in your life when that was happening? What did you do, and and what did you take away from that moment? One of the most courageous moments. <laughs> it's gonna sound, it's gonna sound uh, heavy, but I think walking away from marriage, and I've done it twice. It took a lot of courage because I think we see marriage as a success and the end game, and then we and we want it to be forever and ever and ever. Mm-hmm. And what I've learned is that marriage, for me, and partnership, has such a it's intoxicating. It is beautiful. It has, I would do it again and again and again. Mm-hmm. And they have time limits oftentimes, you know, and not every relationship or partnership or collaboration goes on forever. You know, some, some marriages don't end, and, but most do, whether they legally end or not. Mm-hmm. There, there, there is a, there's a visible end and, and we stay with them. We stay with them. We stay with them for so many reasons. Women tend to hold things together. We have held families together. We have held this country together from our from our free labor and the effort we put into protecting the family, protecting the business, protecting the nation. We just we, we have been relied upon to anchor things. And so what was courageous for me was to untether. And I don't mean that to do so just brazenly or ruthlessly. I never left a marriage ruthlessly. (laughs) Personally, for me to separate from the things that were so a part of my identity Mm -hmm. and so a part of my my need, right, my identity, it was a courageous move. They were over. The the marriages were over. (laughs) And as much as I wanted them to not be over, they were over. Um, And we and to walk away was a was a a acknowledgement of that. And it was a step forward into a new iteration of my life. And (laughs) <laughs> when I say that uh, the universe <laughs> responded to my c- courage, mm-hmm. it was, you know, it, it, in in hindsight, I see that it was the, the best move to make. And so, I, you know, I, I always encourage women to um, to untether. And that does not mean divorce. Sometimes it just means walking away for 15 minutes, mm-hmm. 15 minutes. So c- courage for me is uh, is untethering um, as a woman. And what, what did you learn about yourself in the untethering <laughs> lots of things <laughs> i just i started i've made lists and lists of all the things i've done while i've untethered uh, and they are as wild as you know having sex on the kitchen table <laughs> <laughs> and what mother gets a chance to do that like right. most of us most adults we just don't do it it's, it's, nope. it's, it's not even interesting when you know when the kids are around like you have so many other things but when my kids leave and go to their father's house for the for his time mm-hmm. oh and by the way we do we've now entered into one month for him and the children and then one month for me which is very different most people do like yeah. week to week yeah. or day to day we're now at the point where we have i have the kids for a month and he has the kids for a month okay and in that month off like yeah i have sex <laughs> how radical is that uh for a 50 year old mother <laughs> i um <laughs> sometimes I, um, you know, I cook, I, sometimes I don't even cook dinner. Sometimes I just <laughs> don't do that. Right. Um, I sit for hours and I read a book, journal a lot. Mm-hmm. And I journal about things that just don't matter. Like I, I have this obsession with 
keeping thousands and thousands of notes on hip hop lyrics. Um, and I imagine myself as Drake or as Lil Kim mm -hmm. or as Kanye West <laughs> because they are the most brazen, the most bodacious, the most um, smart. And they're so far from my life, but I imagine myself as a, as a hip hop lyricist. Mm -hmm. and, I, and I find it, you know, I find hip hop, if you take away the person saying it, full of feminist, feminism, <laughs> ironically. So I just, you know, untethering for me looks very different from anyone else's. But what I come out of it, when my, when my kids come back to me, mm -hmm. which they always do, mm -hmm. and when I go back to the things that really are important to me, like family and children, um, after my month of untethering, mm -hmm. I have more vision. I have more vision. Mm -hmm. I have more um, experiences. Leaders need experiences. Yeah. Right. I have more stamina. I have more courage. Like Jody, ten years ago, would have never walked up and faced a board room and asked to be the chair of the board of mostly rich white guys. Right. right. Jody would have never written and finished a book. Right. Like started to write a book or finished a book. Right. Jody would have. I was terrified of public speaking. Right. I speak now every week. Mm -hmm. <laughs> so the, the Jody that emerged through the detachment process mm -hmm. and the you know, all of the silly things that I just mentioned to you, that Jody is much more bold. Wow. Mm -hmm. Which leads to your book, The Bold World, <laughs> right? Yeah. Um, yeah. Which is your, your memoir of transformation and family. Share with us the boldness that led to you writing your book and why that book? Why that yeah. book? Really, you know, there could be multiple books, no doubt, that's sitting That's inside such of a you, good question. Right? So why because, that book? Yeah, well, you, you hit it on the nail. I had five books that I was tossing around in my head. Right. And I was like, should I write a, cause I, I've been, I used to work in the beauty industry. I used to work in the fashion industry. Mm -hmm. And I was, I had five books. One was on beauty, one was on fashion, one was on home decor, one was a little bit of that. Right. And one was on this experience that I was having in real time with my child. Mm -hmm. And so at first I thought I was going to write a book for parents, like almost like a how to, like a guideline, mm -hmm. a blueprint for parents with trans kids. Right. Right. <laughs> because who knows, what doctors are, you know, helpful? Who knows what books to read? Who right. knows anything, right? Or at least some of us don't. And so I was past, I was um, tossing the ideas of these five books around with a friend and she goes, that one, that's <laughs> the one you should write. <laughs> uh, and so I just took a summer um, to write a very rough draft of a proposal. Mm -hmm. I just brain dumped all the ideas that I have. And I'm, a, 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 I'm always, um, writing in my journal so I had a lot of ideas mm -hmm. and so I just spent the summer drafting out the chapters drafting out the ideas drafting out the, the the most memorable moments in my life around the under this new understanding right. of gender like the day Penelope said I'm I'm a boy <laughs> the first time we tried he tried to pee standing up <laughs> <laughs> the first time I understood that the body does not determine gender right right so i just tried to capture these moments that were standout moments in my in my in my mind around gender and that became not just a story of penelope but really a story mm -hmm. of my whole entire family i went back generation and generation to the south and looked at the women who raised me the men who raised me um the husbands that helped me become this woman mm -hmm. um and then the children of course and then i made sure in every moment i was talking about fundamentally myself because this is more interesting. 
how does a woman of privilege, how does a cisgender woman, how does a 50-year-old mom shift? Mm -hmm. It's less necessary for me to dissect someone else, you know, to try to to try to dissect Penelope, a trans boy. It's Mm -hmm. more relevant to understand how this cisgender woman of privilege shifts. Um, and so that what I, I thought that was the story and that was that has become the that that became, you know, the bold world. It is um, the story of a woman shifting around gender and then eventually around race and around privilege to become a better woman and a better leader of her family. And at, at the end, it, 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 leave, it leaves the reader wanting to know more because I was writing it, of course, in real time. Right. And I had to, I had to stop writing at some point and publish it. And at the end of the book, it really, um, it shows you some of the triumphs that we are so proud of in our family. Like, you know, we never lost, no one ever backed away from Penelope. We all mm. came together as a family, mm. the African side, the Swiss side, the, you know, the Southern side, we all came and supported not only Penelope, but all the children. Right. Um, but then we lost some things. My husband, my, my marriage, my relationship fell apart. And you see that towards the end of the book. So, you know, mm-hmm. there's a, there are more stories to tell, which yeah. is why well, I'm writing them. I love that when, you, when, you, when you're sharing from sharing your story and like your journey, as you said, as a 50-year-old mom mm-hmm. and leader, then we can sit in that space of that journey with you in a way that if you're sitting on, if we're, if we're sitting on the outside, does that make sense? Like mm-hmm. I can like mm-hmm. locate myself. I'm 52. Like I can yeah. completely locate myself there as I, as I journey with you and you're sharing so powerfully and, and bold and boldly, like boldly in the sharing, boldly in the work. Like it's just, it, it just represents and keeps, keeps like giving as I, as you go through. So, I and now you want to you're going to do writing a children's book. Yes, so we wrote the book. So a lot of times, family mothers and and parents have said to me, "I'm so excited you wrote the Bold World. I can't wait to share it with my three year old or my five year old." Mm-hmm. And although parts of the book are appropriate for anyone of any age, the the book is really an adult book. Right. I realized there was a need for me to or for Penelope to tell the story through his eyes and, mm-hmm. and my children to tell mm-hmm. the story through their eyes. Mm-hmm. So I, I, I sort of sketched out a story, Penelope, um, Cassius, Othello, and Georgia, and nine, mm-hmm. my, my other children, helped with the language, helped with the illustration um, direction, helped with the um, perspective. So we, have a, we have, now have a children's book that comes out at the end of this year. Nice. Um, that is Penelope's story of Penelope saying who he is and then helping his communities right. support him. So right. he goes for, from this community of his family, then his school and his karate team. And in the end, he wins. Hey, I love that. <laughs> and I love the, I love the family. The family is, re- is writing the book, you know, mm-hmm. this is the family, it's a family um, project too. And so I look forward to that you're doing such I mean it says that it's an understatement to say how it's such important work that you're doing and the generosity in which you share your family and your children's journey with us because mm-hmm. you did not have to do that you know what I mean like we have we can make choices about when things come up sure. for us in our lives and you didn't have to do that and um and and you're doing it and you are um 
you are leading in so many so many amazing ways in in who you are and what you're doing um i've got i've got one more question for you if you yes. look back at the jody who was raised in an activist family and you were i don't know 10 years old mm-hmm. oh i should have asked you but can i just say something gil scott heron i just love love yeah gil. so when you say yeah. my uncle was gil scott heron like ah! you just <laughs> just gotta say that out loud okay in racing he's pretty phenomenal so, you know, as a can kid, we say yeah let's share a little bit about it because like yeah. come on because he well so my mother's my my aunt mm-hmm. my mother's side my, my mom's sister is named Lerma Rackley and she uh talk about bold woman um did life her way mm-hmm. um even when in the south black women were raised very traditionally in many ways and we had a lot of expectations from our families in many moments decided to do it her way mm-hmm. she and gill met and she and gill had a um, relationship that lasted till the end of time excuse mm-hmm. me and they have a child my cousin named ramal mm-hmm. <laughs> and and lerma decided love without legality right. so love without the marriage license mm-hmm. the legal marriage license um, and she also decided that she would raise her son as the boss, she was the boss of her house. <laughs> and she also decided that she would work a full career in politics and in corporate life right. as she chose. So and Gil came into her life because they saw eye to eye on politics, they saw eye to eye mm-hmm. on family, they saw eye to eye on America and activism. And most, many people know who Gil is. He's known throughout the world for mm-hmm. his lyrics. And less people know who Lerma is, but she and Gil are similar in that we have revolutionaries in our family that no one even sees, mm-hmm. the world doesn't know, mm-hmm. but they shift the, the trajectory of an entire family. Right. So without my, and, and <laughs> so I'd say without my Aunt Lerma, we would be very different. Without my Uncle Gil, we'd be very different. And they are, they are in many ways, two peas in a pod. <laughs> they, out, they, they look very different. Mm-hmm. I mean, you know, my Aunt Lerma has had a long career in, in, in the corporate world mm-hmm. um and gil looks yeah have you ever seen a picture of yeah gil? of course yes you know he's just a, a beautiful man and in a very different way that uh, she is a beautiful woman and this is what really interests me about about people when you peel back layers mm-hmm. of presentation of hair perhaps job title perhaps maybe skin color mm-hmm. i don't know maybe gender we see some things that unify us i see gil and lerma Gil Scott Heron and my uncle Lerma as very similar people, although the world might not see them as right, such. Right. And when I started to write my book and I started peeling back the layers, I see myself as my father. No one ever told me, be like your dad, be a boy, be a man. Mm-hmm. <laughs> but not only do I sort of physically look like him, but I embody him. And so I think, you know, this idea of when people say to women, who are the, the three women that have influenced you the most? Mm-hmm. I have a gazillion women. I also have a handful of men. Right. I like how Penelope, this is just another example mm-hmm. of it. Penelope chooses to hold on to the name Penelope, mm-hmm. Gloria, Ajua, say, I am a boy. Right. And say, I am a black trans person. Right. <laughs> and then ask the whole, and then tell the world to deal with it. <laughs> like, I know who I am. I am so many things. You deal with it. <laughs> yeah. And that's what's so um, phenomenal about him. Yeah. Because not he to is. Back on, not no, to but no, I know. I want to. I, I want to underline that because mm-hmm. he's twelve years old. 
Mm-hmm. And many people do, don't even get in their lifetime that's, that strong sense of self that says, no, hold on a minute. I know who I am. You're the one who's got a, a problem over Your there. I'm, I know yeah. who I am. And, and you don't tell me who to be. And mm-hmm. so I, he's, he's, he's 12 years old. I mean, it's just like, and but this was about it. it's for like, longer than is, that, right? He exactly. Was, okay. This is, this is um, the making of Gil Scott Heron. This is the making of Lerma Rackley, my right. aunt, and Gloria right. Blackwell, my grandmother, and Janelle right. Rackley, my mother. They taught us that it won't be televised. It won't be out there. Right. Their internal revolution right. is the most important thing. Right. They taught us that we self-determine who we are. They, so it's like I just wanted to connect the dots when we when we when I say Gil was my uncle, it's not so that you can Google him and look up the no. great records, right. but it's to understand that mm-hmm. if we continuously um, use our lineage and 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 use the opportunity to um, connect the dots of our lineage, if you don't have you know people in your lineage, borrow some of mine, <laughs> borrow some of my family members, right. but really just connect the dots, right. raise yourself, raise your children. To um, to think like a revolutionary, to really think like a revolutionary, mm-hmm. because Penelope would not call himself a revolutionary, but his actions are revolutionary. Exactly, yeah. exactly. And in this, it's, let's come back to this in this time. Mm-hmm. You know, I feel like that's the when we talk about. I said I keep saying there's work for us as Black people to do in this mm-hmm. moment on for ourselves mm-hmm. in the in our communities in our conversation of who we are and that is so when that's one of the pieces of work is is that internal work that sense of self that that lack of being needed to be defined in any way the pushing back Mm -hmm. that's the grounding being fully grounded in who you are there's Mm -hmm. so much work in there as at, at the collective level that is to be done and we come back to as you said to the Black Panthers who were speaking about that many many years ago and <laughs> we're, we're, we're really ripe for this moment we right. are prepared for this we right. are um we have so many tools for this and we just have to take a moment if we need to be reminded of um what got us here we should just take a look at some of the folks that came before Sada mm-hmm. Shakur the Black Panthers mm-hmm. James Baldwin, I mean, and, yep. and just ingest their words for a minute. And then you will understand how prepared we are as black folks and black families right. um, to deal with this. Right. Yeah. I found myself going to my bookshelf this the last mm-hmm. couple of weeks, you know, two weeks ago, I just woke up and I went, I have to just reread the fire next time today. Yes. You know? Oh my gosh. I, I, I read that book throughout the entire process of writing my book fire next time is a moment in time when right. he wrote a very specific story, right. a very specific telling, and it, it, it is applicable today. Exactly. Oh, gosh. It's kind Such of like, sadly, but it is, mm-hmm. you know, but it is a place mm-hmm. I was like, oh, and that was from my first reading of that. I was 18 years old, so mm. that, was, that was a <coughs> long time ago. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> Oh, uh, Jody, this has been. I can. I think so I could nice. sit and chat with you for so much longer. That I feel I was like. I going to ask you to come over for dinner. Listen, I would love to. <laughs> it just really feels like. I really feel like I could just. We could just be hanging out together, and and there's so much more. I feel like I've only we've only just scratched the surface of our, the the conversation and, and what we can talk about and what there is to do. So, 
Maybe I hope you invite me back. I was gonna say that. Look, <laughs> you beat me to it. Absolutely, absolutely. So thank yeah. you so much for your time and for your wisdom and your gifts. I hope that you've been inspired to shift gears in your own life. I love spending time with Jodie. It was a real privilege, and we I, I'm sure that I'll have her back on the show again in the future because it felt like there was still more to talk about but one of the things that's really resonating with me right now is the conversations about race at the dinner table and thinking about when we're having conversations about race in our family what's the amount of the conversation when she talks about the dose plus the environment so thinking about how much of of this conversation am I going to have in this moment with the children and as a family and then what's the environment what am I creating as a space for having that conversation and you know I loved her idea of using the dinner table using uh, what we now as as we talked about not everyone has this but if you do have it what we associate food with comfort we associate food with sharing with connecting it's a it can be a natural place for conversations to arise and to take place so to introduce race as a conversation and learning in that environment seems like a really powerful way to do it and to associate the having a hard conversation and difficult conversations in places where we can we can literally break bread together you know um as a family and and then it has a distinct closing time because as we take get up and walk away from the table we can leave it there you know so if we're if you're trying to figure out how to pace the conversation and how to close out a conversation around race then i really feel like this is such a great um, idea and um, to implement in your own families as well so that really resonated with me and it's something that I'm going to integrate into the, what I'm doing with my children and, um, and and so I give that to, I'm just like sharing that with you that that's not, that's one of my takeaways so I'm curious to hear from you what's one of your takeaways in this conversation um, that I've had with Jody. So please contact me. You always, I always love to hear from you on Shirley McAlpine on my Instagram. You can go to my Shirley McAlpine public page, or you can go to join join me at the She's Got Drive private group as well, where I will be. I'm planning the the Facebook lives that are gonna that are gonna start in September as well. That we're gonna go live in in my. Um, in the She's Got Drive community to start to do regular kind of developmental um, sessions in there. Uh, yeah, so that's what I'm, in, I'm intending to do now. So the links are, all the links for that are in the show notes. She's Got Drive is produced by Cassandra Voltolina. The music is by the awesome or female band Blonde. The song is called Circles. Thank you so much for listening. Until next time, go well and stay well.